also don't want to tear this apart. I mean, this was pretty good. Yeah, I, I agree. I was ready to riff on this, and it was not bad for the low production costs for yeah. a country that was, at the time, sending most of its money to the military and just on the verge of collapse, which, you know, that year it did collapse. It was shockingly close to the Peter Jackson version shockingly yeah. close to it and there's no way the Peter that they Jackson had version it. was shockingly close to this I'm about to say a sentence that you never thought you'd hear me say so I took yeah. a class in Soviet new wave film uh, <laughs> true statement as you know I could just spend decades on this thing I'm I'm abandoning all my research now just to research this for the rest of my <laughs> life so <laughs> Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, with your hosts Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Doc? What, Nina? I've got a joke for you. All right, let's hear it. Okay, what's black and blue and yellow and red all over? Uh, I don't know. What's black and blue and yellow and red all over? Tom Bombadil when he returns from a Soviet gulag. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> now you told me that you had a joke the engineer Mike did not like. Uh, I. <laughs> We're going to start off dark. I, I don't know whether it's funny or it's meta funny, but it's making me laugh. Oh, so I guess there was some news that brought this joke up. There was. It dropped this week well as this podcast drops uh two weeks ago mm -hmm. the um former soviet union russia released a never before seen soviet version of the lord of the rings the very first book was released as a television play yes a recorded television play not a tv series not a movie but a recorded television play yeah that's right and so we watched it we did we sure did yeah, I asked, you know, my my Russian isn't good at all. So I did ask some Russian colleagues uh, and they said that that was also how it was described. So it is best to think about this not as a movie that looks like a play, but rather as a televised play with with special effects, I guess. Yes. And we are not breaking our Movember tradition. We are not uh, discussing this as just a movie. We are discussing this as a news item, but we're also discussing it as a movie. So apparently someone found in the archives of TV5 in Russia this version of, we say Lord of the Rings, but really Fellowship of the Ring, just the, just the first book of the Lord of the Rings, yeah. uh, and uploaded it with no fanfare on Friday. And by Sunday, the whole world had caught on fire. And all I heard about all day Sunday, basically all this week, was, have you seen this thing? And I have to confess, I didn't even know it existed. So it was it was mm -hmm. new for me to know that it even exists. Now, I, I understand from some other scholars, they knew it existed, but everyone thought it was long lost. No one had seen it uh, since, I guess, 1991. And to give some history of 1991, which you and I were not just alive, but we were alive and aware yes. of events at this time. What was going on at this time? Okay. So... <laughs> To give you a little history of myself, uh, I was at the end of the Cold War and I was majoring in English and political science 
with a concentration in Soviet Eastern European studies. And Good so, God, man. Yes. And so in 1993, <laughs> two years after this, I would be living in Lithuania, uh, Eastern European country, which in 1991, the year that this was released, was still part of the Soviet Union. And I was even taking classes, I'm not joking, in Soviet new wave cinema. You get more and more interesting every time we talk. Uh, <laughs> or more and more bizarre, depending. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> My senior year. My fall or spring semester, my senior year, uh, I was taking a seminar, cross-listed grad, undergrad seminar in Soviet Eastern European politics, or just called Soviet politics, I think was the name of this. And the professor walked in one day early on in that term and said, well, I guess I need to rename this post-Soviet politics. <laughs> wow, good timing. Yes, that's right when this is. So immediately upon, upon graduation, everything I had learned was obsolete. And so I went in 1993 and taught at Klaipeda University uh, in Lithuania uh, so that I could watch the end of the Soviet Union. Technically, the Soviet Union had ended the year before. Mm, well, I guess Christmas Day in 1990. Anyway, but it's a process, right? So when I moved yeah. there, the Red Army still occupied. The Red Army left while I was there. They had previously launched... A currency for Lithuania. They were in their second currency, second go at having a currency. So, you know, they're in the process of becoming de-Sovietized. So that's kind of what I perceived. So this didn't look that strange to me in that, mm -hmm. although I didn't have a television, so I didn't watch a lot of TV while I was living in Lithuania. This is the kind of thing that I, I would have seen at that time. This is, so at 1991, the Soviet Union still exists, but it's right at the end of what's called Glasnost and Perestroika. So there's a kind of both a cultural openness and a, a greater willingness to allow some capitalism, which will lead to the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union. Really at the end of the year, at the end of 1991, really, uh, will yeah. we'll come to an end. So this is right at the very twilight of the Soviet Union. So I wanted you to explain this because I wanted people to get a good context of the production value for this because mm -hmm. I've read the, the original Guardian article, which I have linked in our show notes, and even um, a New York Times article and several other articles were kind of picking at the production, well, not even kind of, but uh, really going after the production value. Sometimes the costuming and, you know, the makeup and the like, there was no money in the budget for these kind of productions. There was no money for artistic endeavors in the former Soviet Union. So when I, when I read this, I, I get very upset like the artist in me and and the performer in me gets really angry and says you clearly either don't remember or don't understand the context of the collapse of the soviet union so that's why i wanted you to explain why <laughs> this is so important yeah and also you know in the west we had this little thing little movie called jaws and jaws <laughs> begins this Never uh, heard of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jaws Jaws begins a new thing called the blockbuster. People don't realize like before and even after Jaws, the idea of like how much money and box office receipts, no one kept track of that stuff. It wasn't news. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew. And suddenly there are these huge budget movies that can make a whole lot of money. And that doesn't really happen until then. So even in, in America, you know, I mean, by this time it had been, you know, 15 years, I guess, since since blockbusters had started. But 
that's a very kind of, uh, I guess, capitalist uh, kind of thing that you could have. And it wasn't the kind of yeah. thing that you would have there. And you certainly aren't trying to make a blockbuster TV show or a, a made for TV movie, yeah. or in this case, a, a made for TV play basically. So I do yeah. think you're right. It's an unfair, obviously I was an old cold warrior, so I'm not here to defend the Soviet Union, uh, but I am here. Uh, I am here to defend the, given what they had to work with, I actually thought yeah. it was pretty good production quality. I'm here to defend uh, the performing arts and clearly people have never done middle school, high school, or community theater before because I've worked on <laughs> Productions with a much lower budget than that, and they did extremely well for what they had. Yes. But yeah, let's let's move into our thoughts on the production. Um, again, not bad, not bad. Mm -hmm. For acting, for costuming, for special effects, really good. Yeah. Let's take a step back. Two parts, both about roughly an hour long each, covered the entire Fellowship of the Ring book. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to jump too much into the Peter Jackson movie too much, but I, I feel like we're going to have to discuss some comparisons. Sure. I feel like it covered it pretty thoroughly. They left mm -hmm. a couple of things out, which we'll talk about, but they really did the entire book with uh, a lot of alacrity. No, I think that's right. I mean, it's two hours, so. Yeah. You know, I mean, Peter Jackson did the first book in three hours. So I guess the pacing isn't that much, yeah. uh, sort of the broader pacing of it is not that different. But obviously there's a lot less focus here on battles and things and a lot more focus on the talking and the fleeing and uh, and that kind of thing. And n nothing with like uh, armies of thousands clashing out on the fields of Pelennor or wherever. <laughs> yes, exactly. Let's go into some things that did bother us. Like I was starting off by saying some strange perspective issues, as you pointed out before we started recording. Like you said, there were some choices to have just about everyone the same height, except for the first tavern keeper who I, again, everything is in Russian. I turned on the auto subtitles to see what everyone was saying. And again, I, I'm not quite sure it got everything. I don't know who the first tavern keeper was. And he was seven feet tall while everyone was supposed to be three feet tall, but not quite sure. Tom Bombadil, who, yeah, we'll get to him. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Tom Bombadil. He was huge, as was his wife. And they were looking off camera to pretend like they were huge and, and the uh, the hobbits were itty bitty. Goldberry and Tom Bombadil were so much larger that they were green screened. Yeah. And everyone else was a kind of forced perspective, I guess. I don't, I don't remember yeah. any other characters being green screened for, for perspective. Do you remember that? Yeah. I didn't think that, no. The other green screen effects were just for, I think they were in the, the Mines of Moria and other places where they, they couldn't shoot outside because it's too damn cold in <laughs> Russia, but <laughs> I, I don't know. There's a lot more snow in this uh, than there is in the, yeah. in, in the Tolkien verse, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember there being that much snow in the books or even in the Peter Jackson version, but that's just me. Some strange editing choices. There were random shots of that storyteller, the narrator, who, when this started, I thought he was going to be the chief of propaganda and, like, was going <laughs> to start telling us to support the Red Army and, and the like. But luckily that didn't happen. He was just there to either hold the story together or to completely derail it. And at times that narrator just derailed everything. He just brought everything to a complete stop and got on my nerves. But Yes. So I wondered if he was supposed to be Tolkien uh, telling the story. Yeah. But I asked a couple of colleagues who speak Russian. I, I should say, like, my Russian is very, 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 very weak. Even living in the former Soviet Union because... 
when I lived there, it was kind of politically incorrect to learn Russian since they were the the mm -hmm. colonizer. And so I didn't start learning Russian until almost when I left. So my Russian's very weak. But they said, no, it's just supposed to be a kind of unnamed narrator figure. Uh, and you're oh, right. Okay. It was weird editing where, where sometimes he'd be telling a story. And it would sound like, so this is what happened and giving some exposition. And then other times there'd be just a weird reaction shot, which wasn't even him reacting. It was just him. No. It takes a puff on his pipe and then it goes back to... Was it was happening. always the same shot of him puffing that pipe. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get it. And so let's talk about the music because you and I have <laughs> differing opinions of the music. Yes, we do. And Engineer Mike's on my side, so, you know. Yeah, I know. Two against one. The audience, if you if you side with Nina, you'll have to let her know. Mm, I Yes, I did not like the music. It got on my nerves. I knew because we had to start and stop the YouTube video multiple times just to get it to play on our television because we're trying to get the captions to work. So I heard the opening song in that mournful <laughs> Russian so many times by the time I think it was the fifth time we finally got it to work I'm like oh, I'm, I'm done with this crap and then the synth music that Engineer Mike likes so much I couldn't stand that I know you guys really love oh, your 80s I, 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 I loved how suddenly how suddenly Stranger Things dropped into the middle of this and <laughs> we started getting synth music see when Stranger Things does it it works but when this does it it just it was terrible it's 1991 it's like an 80s holdover right ugh I know they do it for the ring wraiths. It's supposed to signify that the yeah. ring wraiths are coming. But man, I just, by the time the ring wraiths got there, I'm like, eat the friggin' hobbits. I'm done with this. <laughs> I especially liked the closing, the closing credit music where for one split second, I thought they actually had David Bowie singing Russian. And I realized <laughs> it's sort of a, yeah. you know, the old cliche about Christian music is it's, Every Christian musician is supposed to sound like a, a secular musician. This is the, definitely this was the, we need a Soviet David Bowie. And so this is who this <laughs> oh, was. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, okay, let's get to my favorite topic here. Let's talk about Tom Bombadil and let's talk about him. Yes. Let's talk about him in the book and let's talk about why he did not make it to the Peter Jackson movies. What do you think about him as a character in the book? Because I have a theory. I have a hypothesis. I think he works well in the book, but mm -hmm. he is definitely one of the sillier parts of, of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. And I think he works in the book because he is just at the end of when they're leaving the Shire. You know, they're, they're still, they've already faced some adventures, but they haven't gone out into the bigger world. And of course he's the last Sort of silly thing before they get to the Barrow Downs, uh, which yeah. is, we'll probably talk about is, in, is mm -hmm. in this film. So I do think he he works in that way, but sort of famously, Tolkien himself wasn't even sure how he fit into this world. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of a character he had that he he wanted in that. So I'm actually, you know, you, you guys can send your hate mail to uh, <laughs> hate mail at twitter.com or someplace because I don't, I don't care to hear it, but I, I actually... Hashtag don't think it care. made sense for Peter Jackson to remove him from there because his is much darker, a little more serious. He does have mm -hmm. the joke. He does have some jokiness, but it's a lot more martial. Whereas this, you get a lot more of the kind of Russian folk life. Uh, you know, there's a sense mm -hmm. in which this probably took place, you know, in the 1930s, somewhere out in the middle of Asia and very Eastern european russia and so in the rural area and so i think he fits a lot better in that in that way in this anyway. okay 
Yeah. What is your theory, though? I'm interested to hear your... My theory is that he was removed from the movie because he slows the plot down. And I think he's just kind of... He brings everything to a halt. Again, the movie is already, what, three hours long? And there's just no way... Like, you were kind of touching upon this. There's no way to continue the pace of the movie without it just coming to a crashing halt. Yeah, I think that's right. Because, you know, one of the things that... There's this time compression at the beginning of the Jackson movie. Yeah. Which actually doesn't make sense uh, without getting too, spending too much time on it. In Tolkien's book, Gandalf leaves to go research what's going on with the ring. And he's gone for a long time. And he says, meet me. I think it's like basically in a year. Meet me at the Prancing Pony. In Peter Jackson's book, he says, all right, I'm taking off on this horse. You walk a few days, not to, uh, to the Prancing Pony, and I'll meet you there. And then he rides all the way to first Gondor. Then he rides to see Saruman. Yeah. And you're thinking like, there's no way he could have possibly, I mean, he, you know, he couldn't even made it to the first stop, uh, let alone gotten there and back uh, again. And it's ridiculous for him to have, to have thought that, but he's trying to compress the time so much. And I think you're right. You threw Tom Bombadil in there. Yeah. And suddenly it does slow things down. It takes a little while to get to the adventures. Dealing with the time, the the pacing issues, I I had the biggest problem with both this Soviet version and the, the Peter Jackson version with that problem. I So I read the book when I was younger and then again as an adult. And I think the book does such a much better job of explaining the sequence of events because, well, it's a book. But I didn't know how much time had passed between the time... Frodo first gets the ring and the time he leaves the Shire. Like, I I thought, oh, this happened overnight. But then when I read the book again as an adult, I was like, oh, no, a long time, at least like a year or so has passed. And again, in the the Soviet version, I thought, oh, again, they're screwing with the time. And I didn't know. Having read the book, it's a little bit more clear. And I think Tom Bombadil's addition to... The Soviet version slows it down a little bit. It does slow it down, but I I didn't mind it at all, actually. Yeah. I, I thought I thought it worked nicely no, in this version. Though there were large, long periods of, of this where I thought, um, all right, guys, let's pick up the pace. Let's get to yeah. the next scene. Like, does Goldberry have to tuck them in and blow him a kiss and like just, you know, <laughs> send him to bed? I, this is weird. This is that was a weird scene. I'll I'll be perfectly yeah. <laughs> Engineer Mike agreed I think, with me. Yes, I, I think we were supposed to see her as being motherly to them as children, but it did not seem that way to no, me. No, it, it, it was looked, creepy. Yes, it was weird and creepy. And especially the moment where she says, now go wash your hands before you eat. Like, they're all grown up. You know, what is what is? If this? I want to eat with nasty hands, I will. My God, woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of creepy, let's talk about the Barrow Downs. Okay. Like, Engineer Mike pointed this out. The Barrow Downs, they have Christian symbols. They've got crosses on the headstones and engraved in the walls. Are we supposed to take that as a a sign that Christianity is dead in Soviet Russia now? It's hard to say what their intention was because in times when there was more censorship, some things Mm -hmm. that the Soviet filmmakers would do would use fantastical elements or even elements we might consider magical realism uh, in ways to get social commentary through past the censors. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it might also be how do we visually represent that this is a graveyard and get them to understand it. And so maybe it had to be crosses because of that. And I, I honestly can't tell whether it was in this case, just a, this is a visual sign. This is a graveyard or if it's a kind of commentary on Christianity 
or even an attempt to be Christian. I, I will say, so for example, in Lithuania where I lived, there was something called the Hill of Crosses in Chalet. Mm-hmm. I remember we were going to stop off at the Hill of Crosses on our way to somewhere else, and I didn't want to stop. I thought it was the most, it's just a hill that had a bunch of crosses on it. And it sounded pretty boring to me. And then at the end, I was the one they had to go dragging away because it was so stunning to me. And basically yeah. what it was, was you weren't allowed to put up crosses. And so there's this hill where these Lithuanians, local Lithuanians would like put up crosses in the night. And then the Soviets would would bulldoze down the crosses in the daytime. But the, the Lithuanians didn't stop. They'd keep putting up crosses in the night. And the Soviets would keep bulldozing them. And then it became this thing where more and more people would come and secretly put up crosses in the night until finally the Soviets gave up. And so when you go to the Hill of Crosses, there are crosses everywhere. And on every cross, there are more crosses nailed. On those crosses, there are smaller crosses nailed. And there are wow. tens of thousands, at least, if not hundreds of thousands, of crosses on this hill, at least were at that time. And so, and that's like two years later. So this is during Glasnost and Perestroika, so I can't tell how much of this was a... It might have been the opposite. It might have been a, let's sneak some Christian symbolism into this thing and then just like, well, it's a fantasy world, so, so you know, we're, mm-hmm. we can't get in trouble over it. So it could have been any one of those three, uh, and I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Let's show that faith is dead in Soviet yeah. Russia. If it was the reverse, let's sneak some Christian symbols in here, and because it's a fantasy world, we can get away with it. Or if it was just a, oh, we need a visual representation of a graveyard. There we go. Crosses. Yeah. Boom. Uh, speaking of Elvish, uh, did you notice that on the inside of the the One Ring or the what what did they call it in Russian? What was the, the subtitle? Ring of Om- Omnipotence. Omnipotence. The Ring of Omnipotence. The um the writing was in Cyrillic. It wasn't in Elvish at all. I hadn't noticed that, but as soon as you said it, I it dawned on me. I don't think there was any Elvish anywhere in yeah. the movie that I can remember. Do you remember any? I didn't see any Elvish in the in the movie at all, but I know Engineer Mike reads Cyrillic, and I, I wondered if he picked up on any of the words. No, not, now he's quiet. He's not going to break in and say anything, so we'll, <laughs> we'll go ahead and we'll move on. One thing we noticed, or again, this is pretty obvious at the end of part two. There's a woman standing at the Council of Elrond. It's, I, at first I said, is that supposed to be Arwen? And Engineer Mike goes, is it Galadriel? No, it's Legolas. Yes. <laughs> they got they had a woman playing Legolas, which okay, that makes sense. That I'm totally down with that. I have absolutely no mm-hmm. problem with that. But they didn't bother giving her any lines, like you said. No. One step forward, two steps back. Yes, when I saw there was one playing Legolas, I thought, well, there's nothing in Legolas's character that Legolas couldn't be a, a female character. Right. And then I thought, well, maybe the idea is that the the elves are in some way so sort of otherworldly and yeah. sexless, uh, yeah. which I think is maybe what they're going for. And I kept waiting for, oh, let's get, I can't wait to hear if Legolas has a line and they give Legolas, if they dub in a male voice or yeah. if they have a female voice. Nope, no, nope. nothing, nothing at all. I think at one point, um, is it Gimli or Boromir? The actor playing Boromir has his hand on her shoulder a couple of times. I think it's 
Boromir, yeah. I don't know. Like Again, they don't force the perspective on Gimli too much. Maybe they have him standing like on his knees or, or something, but... Uh, I honestly, it took me a while to figure out who was supposed to be a dwarf, let alone who was yeah. supposed to be Gimli. <laughs> yeah, they give her a nice fisherman sweater and some green tights and like let her blonde hair go fly. I mean, she looks great, but they, she again, does. no line. I find myself shockingly attracted to Legolas here, so... <laughs> Everyone found themselves attracted to Legolas. I mean, that that's not a, a shock. <laughs> the, uh, the temptation of Galadriel real engineer mike wanted to point that out i don't really recall that too much in either the the movie or the book but they have this in the uh, soviet version and they do a pretty good job of it Mm -hmm. in this version do you have any thoughts on that yeah there's a weird moment where instead of where where they cut away to a crone Mm -hmm. uh, of some kind and i i think maybe it's supposed to be the alternate evil version of Galadriel, like what she would have become. Like I took her taking the ring to be less like she would turn into a kind of creature like Gollum would, which I think is how it was perceived there. And more of that she would be glorified in evil in some way. But uh, no, here she becomes, she's not quite a creature, but she seems shriveled up in Gollum-esque. Yeah, she had a crown. She was sobbing like she had gained everything but also lost everything yeah i think that makes sense i I don't think any of that is an un is an unrealistic reading of this i mean one of the criticisms of jackson's adaptation that a lot of people had was it leans so far in the almost luddite pro-agrarian anti-industrial side that it went wow too far (laughs) in that direction that is a lot (laughs) which definitely the the pastoral is much is definitely a theme in the book, but I don't think it's an indefensible interpretation. And the same true here. I don't think these are in any way indefensible interpretations. Mm-hmm. Actually, while we're on that, I do want to talk about something which is very surprising, which was, speaking of ruined creatures, you know, I mentioned Gollum. You know, this one scene that they have in here is the scene where where Gollum comes by the ring, and mm-hmm. it is shockingly similar to Jackson's later version. Right. I mean, very, very similar to Jackson's yeah. later version. Of course, they're both based on the book, but just some ways in which they're they're shot and played off yep. are very similar. And I, I as far as I know, Jackson had no had never seen this. It was it's been long it was long lost. Everyone seems to interpret that scene in the same way, which I mm-hmm. thought was pretty interesting. Also, I you know, just side note, I know everyone's been ripping on the costuming for Gollum. I loved it. <laughs> I, I loved his lettuce head. I thought it was fantastic. Yes. <laughs> I, I honestly stopped it and went yeah. back to look to see if it was literally a leaf of lettuce on his head. <laughs> I don't think it is. But if you told me that that was part of a costume that had been made for some sort of eat your vegetables kids uh tv show I or this totally is what you turn it. into yeah yeah Gollum is literally a vegetable and then the final point i want to make before we move on to something else i was extremely disappointed that there was no balrog the highlight yes. of the book and of peter jackson's version just none of that i mean how could they pull it off well i could tell you how they could pull it off if they could have a puppet for a an eagle <laughs> They could do something. The eagle puppet only lasts like three to five seconds. It by itself is worth the price of admission for this movie. (laughs) Which we were talking about this beforehand. 
this was horrifying to me. I was triggered. I started crying. No, I didn't start crying, but I was horrified by this puppet, but they could do something similar for a Balrog. I would have stuck around for this Balrog puppet. Okay. That's just. Sure. They could have, they could have green screened it. It was surprising to me. They didn't try to do something for it. Yeah, because at the end, I, I would I looked around. I said, "What happened to the Balrog? Isn't the Balrog mm-hmm. next?" And and engineer Mike goes, "Oh no, that was that was supposed to happen scenes ago." Yeah, and the, and then so like Gandalf just sort of gets overwhelmed by orcs. Yeah, and he goes down that way. Disappointing. Which also led me to wonder. It does feel like they they don't like bring the story to a close. They end Lord of the Ring. They end Fellowship of the Ring. But it doesn't feel like the end of the story. So clearly someone at some point had had the thought of, oh, we're going to do the the next two books. Uh, and I don't know why they didn't. Maybe the Soviet Union collapsed before they could have. It would have actually made sense <laughs> Likely, in terms of yeah. time frame. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're going to do that. But it causes me to wonder, like, how is Gandalf going to come back? Like, what exactly was is supposed to happen here? Because maybe he, there was going to be a story about how he escaped from the orcs or something. Um, it would have made his transformation into Gandalf the White really, I don't know, uh, anticlimactic or, or yeah, uh, un- unearned in some way. They would have had to retcon the Balrog into it, which just wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been as fun. You need to have that climactic Balrog, you know, whipping his fire tail around him and dragging him down to hell, that sort yeah. of thing. Okay, the so the depths of Moria. The depths of Moria. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I want to talk about this production as Soviet propaganda. Now, I was watching this pretty closely to see where I could needle it for, like, messages, for red messages. Mm -hmm. I didn't really find anything. Like I said, I was watching the narrator. I was waiting for him to just, you know, drink your borscht, you know, that sort of thing. But (laughs) there's nothing really that I could find. Do you think this production works as Soviet propaganda? Or is it just, you know, a production of The Fellowship of the Ring? Or The Guardians, as its literal translation is. I don't think it would work as propaganda. Like I said, like it, mm-hmm. it's at the time when propaganda is kind of declining a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of what they're doing. I also don't think it was anti-Soviet. Like like I, I mentioned the possibility of them trying to sneak some stuff in there. I, I don't actually think it was so much of that either. I think it was someone wanted to put this on. And yeah, there's a kind of russification of it. Which we could say, I think, is maybe for propaganda purposes, but, you know, it might also just be, this is what our audience recognizes. You know, we, if we have things from that look like a British fantasy world, then it's going to be less recognizable to our audiences than things that look like they come out of Russian folktales. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, like these are background characters from some sort of story about Baba Yaga. So. Exactly. And then about symbolism, because this has been something I've been hearing about since I've read the book. The ring and symbolism, the symbolism of the ring, does the ring represent nuclear power? Does it represent, in the context of the book and Tolkien's age and when he was writing the book, does he want us to think of the books as and, and the war in the books as a metaphor for World War Two. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was supposed to be an allegory for World War Two, and in the 1960s when this really sort of became the cultural phenomenon that we know of it as today, that was maybe one of the most widespread readings of it. And as Tolkien pointed out, he he addressed this directly, and he said, first of all, I started writing it long, long, long before the war, mm-hmm. and then he argued specifically about the Ring. He said, like, well, okay. If the ring represents nuclear weapons, then what would happen would be like 
Gondor would seize the ring and use it to defeat uh, Mordor and mm-hmm. uh, that it wouldn't work. And he just sort of, he actually rethought the Lord of the Rings. Like what would the story, how would I have written the story if I in- had intended it to be an allegory for World War II? Aside from all that stuff, if he had never written a single word about it, I would have very strongly argued that it was not, it's not an allegory for anything. And the reason I would say that is because Tolkien very famously hated allegory and he would dog C.S. Lewis about Narnia and how allegorical it was. And he's like, allegories at the wrong writer. You got to look at C.S. Lewis for that. Yes. If C.S. Lewis had written this, you'd be, it's time to start looking for the allegory. Yeah. You could argue that there might be unintended allegory in there. That's a little harder in this case, because as I mentioned, he wrote it largely before world war two, but it would have to be entirely unintentional. Whereas C.S. Lewis, it's, it's meant to be there. Okay. I, I can buy that. So we can really talk about this production for hours and hours. And I think probably off mic, we're going to continue talking about this <laughs> for hours and hours. But yeah, Engineer Mike's giving the, us the whippy finger. The, um, I, I will say the, the, the pre-talk, we had to ban talk about this before the podcast so that we wouldn't just get wound up uh, and, and get going. There's so much to be said. There really is. I mean, let's see what else. We could we could talk about uh, the Hobbit feet and how they're absolutely <laughs> the interpretation of the Hobbit feet there were strange. They look like the feet from the creatures and where the wild things are. Yes, that's they what, did. They look just like that. Yeah. Engineer Mike called it the Kabuki makeup, which I said no, that's just stage paint. Don't uh, yeah. <laughs> worry about that. But let's get into some recommendations. Do okay. you have a recommendation? I do actually, and I want to recommend something I've recommended before, and it's a film called Beowulf. Prince of the Geats. And you're yes. thinking like, well, this is not about Lord of the Rings, but I want to recommend this because it was a zero budget film. It was made for literally no money. It was made all entirely by volunteers using volunteer materials uh, because the purpose of it was to raise money for the American Cancer Society. Society. To raise money for can- for cancer research anyway. Uh, and so they wanted every penny of it to go. And they wouldn't even let people donate money. If someone's like, I want to donate money, they would say, no, but we need this thing. Get that thing and donate the thing. That's fine. Uh, if you watch Beowulf, Prince of the Geats, it's again something where sometimes people look at it and go like, well, what's what's up with the production value here? And then when you realize it was made for no money, everyone's a volunteer, it's absolutely miraculous. And I have a love for these these projects where people are using what is at hand to try to make a really great adaptation of literature. And uh, this is... Beowulf, Prince of the Geats, and the Soviet version of Fellowship of the Ring mm-hmm. are are in some way of the same piece. Yeah, let's let's just hope the New York Times doesn't get a hold of it and make fun of its production value because God forbid. My recommendation is also something I've recommended before. <laughs> I'm just so happy about this. Okay, I am recommending again the Pyramid Collection. Last year, I think it was, I recommended this because there was a cloak that I wanted. Well, guess what? I finally have it. <laughs> I just flipped it over onto my head. She is wearing it. If this were if this were a video podcast, you'd yes. be able to see she's wearing yep. it right now. It's lovely. It's hot. I've been wearing it all episode. <laughs> and I'm in this room, which has virtually no airflow because this is where I record. Duh, I am sweltering. There's a story behind this cloak. Doc, you got it for me for Christmas. It got here mm-hmm. in April. <laughs> So the short story is you originally got me a green one. Yes. I I misremembered the color that you wanted. Yes. So I got the wrong color. 
That was not what was delivered. Okay, just to put this very politely, a skirt in goddess size was delivered. <laughs> Absolutely no shame or hate toward anyone who is goddess size, but I am not goddess sized. Sent that back and You could you could have worn it as a cloak though. I so. tried wearing it as a cloak. <laughs> But it, it did not look right. I sent that back and basically waited for months and months and months for this one to arrive. And it finally arrived. And so I've been wearing it and swooshing around the swamp where I belong. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. Next time we record in person, I will be wearing it. So uh, I think I think the next if the Russians decide because of this, that they want to do a, a production of the two towers, I think you could easily be an extra in that or maybe have a speaking role. You could be Thank Eowyn. You. Thank you. I have quarantine hair now, so I can just shake it out. And... and you could say, I'll bring my own costume. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I have it. I've been wanting this for a very, very long time. All right. Final thoughts. My final thought is I really recommend people watch this. Uh, I really do. You can get the captioning to do an auto translate to English. The interface is terrible on YouTube, yes. but it is possible we we both managed to do it but it was not easy i can't i'm not even gonna bother trying to explain how to do it but it's worth it to do that and and to see what they did so uh i want to say a great great job to to all the cast who you know are now probably elderly and or dead so (laughs) it's been 30 years (laughs) i i want to end us on a lighter joke a lighter soviet joke okay so an american and a soviet are talking And the American says to the Soviet, we're so free in America, I can go right up to the White House and I can shake my hand and I can say, down with Ronald Reagan. This is a very old joke, by the way. And the Soviet says, that is nothing. I can go right up to Kremlin and I can shake my fist and say, down with Ronald Reagan, too. (laughs) West Duhal, Nina. West Duhal, Doc. Hop and Evil was recorded under him. Hosts are Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. The music is courtesy of Dr. John Ginwright. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash Thank you for listening. Michael has never, by the way, broken in on any episode as much as he has on this one. I know. One. This episode, this is why I say it could run six hours for sure. There's so much to be said here. I almost want Engineer Mike to have his own microphone for this one.